Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We look forward to delving into the topics that are shaping clinical care, medical research, medical education, and challenging us to reimagine medicine. Each month, we bring together clinicians, researchers, educators, healthcare thought leaders, and medical students to share the experiences and ideas that are fueling their efforts. In this episode, we will discuss America's doctor shortage, approaching crisis level. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. I'm Dr. Katie Bright. We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. A recent report published by the Association of American Medical Colleges confirms the United States will experience a shortage of over 121,000 physicians by 2032. Our nation's population is growing older and we're living longer. The demand for physicians continues to grow faster than medical schools and residencies can prepare new doctors. During this episode, we will talk with leaders from the U of A College of Medicine Phoenix to learn more about what position the college holds to address this projected shortfall and this current crisis. It's great to have you with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine Phoenix or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Joining us today is Dr. Jeffrey Wolfrey. Dr. Wolfrey leads the Department of Family, Community, and Preventive Medicine at the U of A College of Medicine, Phoenix. He also serves as chair of the Banner University Medical Center, Phoenix Department of Family Medicine, and he is a board-certified family physician. Dr. Wolfrey is a faculty member at the Banner Good Samaritan Family Medicine Residency. Dr. Wolfrey, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Good to be here. The most recent estimates indicate a shortage of primary care physicians in the United States could reach well over 55,000. The census data show that rural areas of the United States, including the Southwest, are some of the most underserved. According to the Graham Center, Arizona has an even larger shortage than most of those uh, areas in the Northeast. How is this going to impact communities in Arizona? This uh, is going to have a particularly big impact uh, in Arizona because we currently rank 46th out of the 50 states in the U.S. in terms of primary care access, but we have one of the fastest growing states in the country. Because, uh, because of those two factors, we actually are losing ground faster than in any other state in the U.S., um, and it's projected that um, we'll, we'll have a shortage just of family medicine uh, physicians alone approaching 2,000 by uh, the year 2030. And this crisis shortage is certainly making everyone take notice. One question I have is, you know, family physicians often staff some of our most underserved areas, you know, urban underserved areas, rural health centers. Can you comment on how these shortages are going to be particularly felt in their, in these underserved areas? Um, well, you know, as the name suggests, these areas are already underserved, uh, and as that worsens, um, these patients will have to either travel further for health care, sometimes uh, traveling uh, literally hours to get to a basic uh, health care visit, or they'll often go without care. They'll delay care. They'll um, use other sources uh, for care, frequently hospital emergency departments, um, and well, we know that increased primary care in the healthcare system improves outcomes and lowers cost. And so further diluting the access to primary care will predictably um, decrease the value of care, will drive up costs, and, and in outcomes will go down uh, as a result of this shortage. 
So unquestionably, we're going to need more physicians. I mean, that's the topic of today's podcast. And the predictions of this um, is twofold. One is the growing population that you said, but also the aging population. And as baby boomers are living longer, they require more care as they age. As uh, from your position within the college and as a physician, how are medical students being drawn to primary care? We have uh, several different strategies that are that are being deployed right now. One of them is um, trying to to make sure we get the right type of student to the school. We're, we have a strategic initiative right now that, that is being launched to uh, better attract, uh, recruit, and retain uh, residents of Arizona, and especially um, uh, attracting residents from uh, underserved um, groups will uh, would uh, hopefully increase the percentage of um, those students that that stay on in Arizona, practice in Arizona, and actually practice in those underserved areas. And there's some data to, to show that, that that would be the case. We're also trying to better support students once they get here into medical school uh, in terms of, of uh, choosing primary care careers. We've just started a new certificate of distinction program uh, uh, in primary care, and that includes um, mentorship, um, some uh, increased uh, uh, curriculum in, in the form of regular seminars, um, uh, and, and ongoing uh, advising and support for those students that are interested in um, primary care careers. We're trying to do something to address the, the significant problem of the debt load that these students have because um, on average, primary care careers um, are reimbursed at about 50% of what specialty careers are, but the students have the same debt load um, as, as students that go into the highly reimbursed specialties. So just recently, um, there has been an appropriation within the state uh, budget for uh, some scholarship funding. Actually, uh, we anticipate $1.5 million in scholarship funding to go to the college um, for students that are that are uh, on a pathway to um, practice primary care in these underserved rural and uh, urban areas. If um, another predictor of students that return to uh, underserved areas is that they had training experiences that were in um, uh, inner city urban areas or in rural communities. So we're, we're um, increasing. One of the things we're doing is uh, starting a longitudinal integrated clerkship in Payson, which will put students for most of their third year in a clinical setting where they'll experience continuity and experience some of the uh, um, uh, rewards of practicing in a, in a well-defined community with the same cohort of patients over time. I really like the way that you started to dis or you transitioned over into the excitement behind primary care. How do you um, how do you personally encapsulate primary care medicine so that you can share the excitement that you've seen and you want to convey to those students? Well, I think you're, you're hitting on one, one key thing, and that is mentorship. Students need to be exposed to, um, to mentors that have experienced some of those rewards. But I think actually providing meaningful experiences, uh, and that's where the community-based um, exposure, I think, really makes a difference. I know in my own uh, training that uh, one or two weeks uh, in um, uh, certain environments that let me really see the way that primary care physicians developed and were able to utilize their relationship with patients um, made a huge impact and, and really influenced my own career decisions. 
So just on that note, to expand on it a little bit, I know one of the things we're we're talking about all the time as a campus is increasing that mandatory or required exposure. We all, all of our students have a certain amount of time that they spend in urban underserved or rural um, areas currently, and we're looking at hopefully increasing that time because we know how important that is. There's actually a program that we're just putting together now that I'm particularly excited about in, in this uh, area, and that is a center. Um, it's one of the strategic initiatives that is being developed, a, a center that will combine um, healthcare by students of underserved patients. It will um, incorporate interprofessional education at this site. And then another uh, exciting wrinkle is that it's going to promote um, uh, clinical research that's community-based, but particularly focused on social determinants of health. Yeah, that center sounds quite remarkable, and the fact that you're bringing together the education, the research, and the clinical care um, and the service that um, are the pillars of the College of Medicine. Um, the shortage is significant enough that a single solution is not going to be sufficient. There's no way that just training physicians is going to get us to where we uh, want to be. How do we train our physicians to work in those teams? How do we promote other uh, training facilities to build that workforce that's needed? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and uh, I think that, that hits on really a, a key factor for success in extending the reach of physicians, and that is better incorporating other team members. And that will include um, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, but also many other members of the team that haven't really been leveraged as fully as they can. Uh, MAs, uh, medical assistants, actually deliver much of the population health um, uh, uh, inreach and outreach. That is care for the patients that, that show up in the office and those that haven't been in the office in some time. And they do an excellent job of, of closing gaps in preventive care, chronic disease care, uh, you know, getting patients back in and getting um, uh, health services that they're overdue for. Um, so I think uh, that building uh, teams and, and training physicians to be effective leaders of those teams is really going to be one of the critical things because even if we are wildly successful in, in our various um, pipeline programs, that is not going to stem the gap. So, so using these teams and other uh, leveraging um, uh, our reach in other ways, using technology better, um, better utilizing portals and uh, virtual visits um, where the patient doesn't have to drive three hours but actually can, can have a very effective visit um, using um, uh, Zoom or Skype or various other technologies. Um, so, so I think we're, we're going to have to, to do things differently, um, and, and, and using teams and using technology are going to be two key uh, ways to do that. So I have two final questions. Um, one, and it's kind of circling back just a little bit before our listeners who might be contemplating or pre-med or maybe just starting on their medical training, uh, can you speak a little bit more about, besides the appropriation of scholarship funding that we will have shortly, areas now or ways that primary care providers can be reimbursed or you know loan repayment options that are currently available for our students? The state has programs um, that you can apply for and, and those are usually done on the basis of um, for X number of years of, of 
tuition support, you owe that many years of service in, in, a, in a state or a community. Um, there are programs that, uh, federal programs, such as the National Health Service Corps, which are similar in that, that usually year for year, you know, service for uh, tuition uh, or loan repayment, um, tuition assistance or loan repayment. Um, the military has programs where um, you, you would owe um, uh, a year for each year of, of tuition support um, in a, a military um, uh, health care uh, arena. So there's, there's a variety of different um, options to students. And I just wanted to specify, as a National Health Service Corps recipient myself, getting to practice primary care and get my loans paid off was just the added bonus because I was doing what I loved anyways, but also that these are really available just for primary care, so an added incentive that specialists don't have. Right. Final question, um, you know, and this is the free-for-all a little bit, so what what is untapped? What might be some potentials that we have not yet quite um, delved into that might help us with this crisis shortage? Well, what, one thing that's going to make a difference, I think, um, is is market forces. I think um, the income disparity can't be ignored a, as a factor. Uh, and it's interesting, if you track the percentage of med students that choose primary care careers and compare it to the percentage of primary care incomes to specialty incomes, they track remarkably together. It's, it's almost perfect parallel lines. Um, so clearly that association suggests that um, as the income disparity gap narrows, that, that is going to help. And, and supply and demand factors are actually driving um, primary care salaries up. So, so that, that's one thing I think it's going to be important. But I think uh, there should be equal uh, pride in, in having students select the, the type of careers that our country needs, that our state needs. Uh, to call this a, a primary care access crisis, in the U.S. and in Arizona. That's not an exaggeration. I really like that last message of follow your heart. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, right now we're out of time with you, Dr. Wolfrey, and we look forward to uh, seeing where you take the College of Medicine in terms of primary care. Thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you, Dr. Wolfrey. We would like to welcome Glenn Fogarty to the discussion. Dr. Fogarty is the Associate Dean of Admissions and Recruitment at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. He also serves as an assistant professor in the Department of Bioethics and Medical Humanism. Dr. Fogarty is the co-block director of the Introduction to Medicine course, in addition to directing the MD-MBA dual degree program, which represents part of his training. Dr. Fogarty, let's just start high level. Can you just tell us about the process of recruiting medical students to our college, when recruitment season starts, who we're hoping to attract, and what draws students to pursue medical school in the first place? Absolutely, and thank you for having me here. Yeah, it, it is actually interesting because uh, for us, we've we received 6,000 applications for just 80 seats. But when I first got here about four years ago, the first thing I did was go out and find a director of admissions and recruitment with really a focus on recruitment because more than anything, we wanted to try and find the students with the right fit for us. If you really look at it, it's kind of like an 80-20 rule. We get about 20% of our applications from Arizona, 80% from the rest of the country. Now, when it ends up being the invitation for us to interview, it's usually about 50-50 uh, students in-state, out-of-state, but we do find the students that truly want to be here, which we're excited about. Now, when you look at the top institutions that they come from, um, yeah, it, is, it usually works out to about 800 applications we get from Arizona and about 2,000 from California, which is always interesting. UCLA always ends up being about the top institution. ASU and U of A is right behind them. But then the UC systems, UC Berkeley, uh, UC San Diego, UC Irvine, are always strong, always in of our top 10. 
Now to find these students, we follow the, what we call a holistic review process. Now that for us is what we consider metrics, attributes, and experiences. And this last class we just brought in, the class of 2023, uh, they were at the 88th percentile, 513 average. So you could see us just moving up uh, excitingly well. For those experiences that we have, we do look at the AAMC core competencies. And those are really clinical, research, leadership, volunteering, and extracurricular activities. And then when you have the attributes, they are the core to who we are. We have 16 of them. We list them right on our website, and we tell our candidates to go out there and actually search those out. I'm so glad you reviewed that uh, statistical breakdown of the classes and the applicants who are available for uh, filling that doctor shortage as we come down the pike. As you said, there's no shortage of applicants. What there is is a shortage of seats at the college. We started with 24 seats, we moved up to 80 seats, and there's a call to move up to 120. What makes it so hard to get up to 120? When will this happen? And what are the challenges and the steps required to make this a reality so we can begin to train more physicians? Yeah, it's well said. I mean, for us, it's always been our plan. This campus has built for 120 students, and so we just kind of had to walk before we run. Uh, we were working with the College of Medicine down in Tucson. We first started down here, and then back in you know, as you know, in 2007, we had the 24 students, moved it up to the 48 students. 2012 saw us with the class of 80 students. And now just this year, we look like we have the state appropriation of $8 million coming in, and it was specifically stated for us to increase our class size. And so we put in the plan in motion as we speak. We're working with the LCME, the Liaison Committee for Medical Education right now, to put an application forward to try and move this class from the 80 to 100 and then to 120. Um, our goal is to get the approval this year to move up to 100 and then 120 the following year. But of course, we're, we're walking before we get there, before we run. Uh, but we think we will be there because there is that shortage. And actually, you know, it was the reason why we started this medical school in Phoenix. Uh, back there in 2007, there wasn't a medical school here. Now, 10 years, 12 years later, there's five medical schools here, but still there is that shortage. So we are doing our mission. We are trying to meet that need. And uh, yeah, we're excited about the steps that we're taking toward it. In that uh, series of steps that we are now jogging through, to take your analogy a little bit further, in those steps, where is an opportunity for the community to lean, lean in? Uh, do we need more educators? Do we need more mentors? Do we need more research advisors? Do we need more? What kind of doors need to open more in order to achieve that 120 goal? Yeah, I think uh, every door has to be open, and I think that's what we're walking toward right now. Um, so as we were building our classes uh, in our applicant visit days, we used to bring in 300 students to, to interview or candidates at that time. We moved it up to 400, and then as we're looking at this class of 100 to 120, we're going to probably be bringing in 500 plus uh, candidates to interview. So with that, we truly need our community to even help interview these students. We, we bring in, uh, at that time, um, faculty members, staff, community members, they all help in this kind of process. And then as we go and go forward, um, it, it is really taking the whole village to lift us. Um, it is working with the state. It is working with the city. It is working with the government. It is working with all of our clinical partners that we have. And it's us all coming together trying to decide that this is what we're going to do and how we're going to build it. Um, you know, there is a need here for us just to be able to get the students. But then we also, as you know, Dr. Wolfers mentioned, we want to keep them here in Arizona. So we are doing some strategic initiatives to try and get that built. And like I said, it is that village that is taking to come together to put this all together for us. So thinking back consistently, maybe even every year, it seems that our graduates are 
very consistently above the national um, average for match statistics into residency programs, including some highly competitive programs in Arizona and throughout the U.S. Can you talk about how we guide our students into figuring out what specialty is the right fit for them? Yeah, um, we, we've actually allowed the students to take the lead, which I, I truly appreciate. Um, and then what we try and do more than anything is to have a support system for them uh, to support every step that they go. Um, if you start at the very beginning in, in the first two years of medical school, we put an MD and a PhD in each one of the block courses. So they're actually seeing the, cl the clinical and theoretical perspectives of everything. We do early clinical exposure early and often, even during that second week of that introduction to block, that course that I'm co-block director of, uh, which is fantastic. They actually get to do exactly what they love and get out in that clinical environment. And then even then, uh, during the curriculum, uh, during their second year, even in April of their second year, they're already starting the clerkship rotations to give them some wonderful exposures. And then we have people like career advisors that we're meeting with them early and often to kind of give them the advice and where they want to go and what they want to do. And then when it truly comes down to those match statistics you were talking about, uh, we always like to say, from here, you can go anywhere, because we've seen it, uh, and the proof is in our students. You know, they've gone to wonderful programs like the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, but some other ones you've heard of, like Case Western, Johns Hopkins, Mayo, Northwestern, Yale, Harvard, Stanford. I mean, it's always an impressive list. And then specialties like neurological surgery, interventional radiology, ophthalmology, emergency medicine, to just name a few. And of course, the spectrum of primary care fields, which makes us quite proud as well. Your team leads many of our pipeline programs, often starting as early as high school. I was hoping you could um, speak about these pipeline programs, but also maybe discuss how this leads to interaction with our medical students, possible future matriculation. Our Office of Admissions and Recruitment certainly has these, these exercises, but then we hand-in-hand -hand work with the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, as well as the team that runs the Pathway Scholars Program. That, that one-year master's program with successful completion could lead directly to an MD admission, which is fantastic for them. Out of our offering, we do run a few specific programs like, you know, for our high school students, Saturday Scrubs program, which does it during the academic year, a half day program for them. Uh, we have summer scrubs programs, again, for high school students, but week-long programs. And then we have a pre-med academy we started just a couple years ago for college students. It's actually a three-year preparatory program, so we could actually take students and maybe have them bypass the kind of need for something like a Pathway Scholars program. Now, all of these are really built toward the underrepresented mess, and we call it URM, but it is the student that doesn't have that same access and opportunity. So with that, um, you know, we, we, we try and do a few things to try and you know, really have an influence on our community. One thing we always have to remind, remember uh, in the state of Arizona is we cannot take affirmative action, uh, so we do not take race or necessity into any kind of admission decision. But with that, that's why we build these pipeline programs, so we can find these students, we can have an influence on them early, so they are prepared for medical school when they do come and are competitive. So truly, what we want in the end is then to be a reflection of our community, and that's, uh, that's what we're shooting for with these pipeline programs. And we've had some great success to date, and, and, but still, you know, more work to be done too. You've described how we have attracted new types of students, how we attract highly qualified applicants, not just based on their academic performance, but about the integrity in their core to serve the community. But those same applicants are going to be highly sought after by other institutions. Um, and for many reasons, qualified applicants who would be perfect for our college go to other schools. 
what are the obstacles that are in front of us that prevent us from matriculating these students? What is it either about us that deters them or about the other school that draws them in? Yeah, yeah. what we're finding is, is highly competitive candidates. And what we learn is a lot of them get multiple acceptances. And what we say then at that time is we will fill a class, 6,000 applications, 80 seats we will fill, but we want to fill with the right ones. We want to fill the ones that want to be here. So, you know, how or why do we lose them? It really ends up being two kind of main reasons. Um, you know, first one, uh, if they get in their in-state institution, you know, the AAMC states, you know, about almost 70% if they get in their in-state institution, that's where they choose to go. It's just cost of living uh, type of factor. But the second one is is scholarships. Um, we just, you know, as a young institution, we just haven't been had that much money yet to support. But an interesting fact uh, about us is, you know, again, another double AMC fact, but they uh, they state uh, this last class, our last applicant year, 60% of the applicants only got one admissions offer. We're tracking our data right now, and of our students that we offered an acceptance to, 60% had multiple offers. So we are finding very competitive students. We are, they are saying yes to us, but we do still lose some. Uh, but with that, um, you know, we just want to make sure that we have, you know, 80 and then hopefully 100, then hopefully 120 uh, that are here for the right reasons and the right fit for us. Well, the good news is that the Arizona residents are going to have a great cadre of physicians to provide their health care in the future. And, and another positive for us is as we move this class size up, you know, it will be more opportunities for Arizona residents and in this spot. It's really great to talk about these future opportunities. Thank you, Dr. Fogarty, for sharing your insights with us and for being with us. It's been a pleasure. We have to take a break now, but we will return in a few moments with our next guest. The Reimagined Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital, the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and co-director of the Family, Community, and Preventative Medicine Clerkship at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, placing students with community clinical partners all across the state. She is a family physician and the vice president of primary care services at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Welcome back to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We're pleased to have Dr. Cheryl O'Malley join us. Dr. O'Malley serves as Associate Dean of Graduate Medical Education. She is also a Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Internal Medicine, and she's been the Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program since 2008, a program that has been repeatedly recognized as one of the most innovative in the country. Dr. O'Malley, nearly half of the residents who completed training from 2007 to 2016 are practicing in the state where they did their residencies. Given this correlation, how important is it and how important are residencies in helping Arizona and other states attract the physicians that they need? Thanks for having me here. And it's an important point that you're making. Yes, residency programs are a great way to address workforce. And you're correct that um, in the most recent data that's published by the Association of American Medical Colleges, nearly 40% of active physicians are practicing in the state that they did their uh, medical school. And, um, and then it goes up when you're talking about the state that you did your residency training, your most recent GME training. So that goes up almost to close to the 50% that you mentioned. 
the nice thing is that in Arizona, we also have that the retention rates go even higher if you spent, um, if you did both undergraduate medical education and graduate medical education in Arizona in our public institution, that goes up to 75% retention. Part of the reason that we're discussing this concept of where physicians are training is because of the shortage that physicians uh, are showing across the country and especially in growing areas like the state of Arizona. And in order to overcome the shortage, it's going to require a multi-pronged approach. Can you talk to us about what uh, things are on the horizon or even in works currently in Arizona to uh, meet the need? You're right. The workforce issue is something that is important nationally um, and certainly within Arizona. I think with some of the other presenters from this evening, you've heard that Arizona has its own shortage with only um, with being ranked only 32nd um, as far as the number of active practicing physicians um, providing patient care per 100,000 population. What Arizona has done and what some of the strategies have been across the country is to increase medical student spots and also to increase residency spots. And that's for those purposes that we just mentioned. The students who um, come to a state for training or stay in their state for training are more likely to stay to work. Um, similarly, if they stay for their residency training and if they stay for both, then they are um, most likely to then contribute to the future workforce. So in Arizona, our strategies have been to increase our medical student spots, and there's been incredible growth, growth over the last um, 10 years with an increase between our public schools and having our new College of Medicine Phoenix over this last 10 years, um, and then also the osteopathic schools um, and a significant increase in the number of undergraduate medical education spots. There has been growth of GME spots as well, but not to the same pace. And so we actually still have a discrepancy between the number of GME spots versus the number of undergraduate medical student spots. So the way that it currently is, even with the recent expansions of GME, um, for every uh, for every 10 medical students who graduate within Arizona, there are only eight residency spots for them. And when you go down to how many um, first-year resident spots there are, um, about 25% of them would not have a spot in the state. As not a physician, help me understand this. Are we talking about increasing class size, the same issue that, it, that plagues our schools, or is it both increase the class size and increase the physician trainers. So uh, within the GME program, do you need more attendings who are going to be training these residents and therefore we may not have as many primary care physicians because they need to be training the new physicians. That's a really good point. You're right, it takes resources to be able to support um, GME programs, residencies, and fellowships. And that means faculty, as well as the clinical training sites, as well as the salaries for those residents. Um, so far, it hasn't seemed like a dearth of faculty has been the reason for a lack of growth. It's usually the funding for those salaries and those positions. But you're right, there is a certain amount of support that's also necessary to be able to have the faculty um, compensated and supported for the work they do in training. So as we're talking, it seems that increasing GME spots is not only reasonable, but a critical piece of, of this puzzle as we increase our med student class sizes and grow. and 
Um, I'm wondering if you could just speak a little more about that. I know change at a federal level can be painstakingly slow, but recent supporters, any recent appropriation of funding, and maybe who are our biggest allies and advocates within our state to help us get these increased spots that we so desperately need? The, the support for the funding piece that we just mentioned is one of the key pieces that is a, a critical part about expansion. And federal support has come historically through Medicare funding, which was capped in 1996. And so the existing teaching health centers that had spots at that point were where the number and the capacity was frozen. And so growth since that time has been supported and funded through CMS and Medicare through new teaching health centers, new hospitals that has established new GME programs, but not expansion of those existing ones. So that hasn't grown um, in over 20 years. But what has happened is states have partnered with some of the different federal programs to be able to provide funding. And our state is one of those. So through um, the expansion of Medicaid, and in our state that's access, through that and a partnership at the federal level, we began to um, fund GME programs back in uh, kind of early 2006, and that's led to significant increases over this last 10 years. So the growth of the 500 GME slots over this last 10 years has been um, due to that support through that partnership with access and, um, and the federal match that comes as a result of that. The other important partners are the VA. The VA has continued to support expanded training programs, and that's been a continued source of growth. And then additional funding that comes through the hospitals and the health systems that invest in this because of workforce needs, because of um, the partnership that graduate medical education and education programs have in the clinical growth and the efficiencies and the quality of care that happens within those, those hospitals. So it has had to be a partnership with um, a variety of approaches. The final one is that actually the state did um, allocate funds in this last legislative session um, for the first time in over 20, or gosh, I think over 10 years at least, that the state allocated funds directly for graduate medical education. And that was targeted largely to rural areas and also to urban underserved. So looking at not just growth period, but growth in the areas of most need. It's great to hear about all those uh, opportunities that are afforded through the state of Arizona to grow our physician uh, population. And with the partnership between the College of Medicine Phoenix and Banner uh, Medical Center, we have Banner University Medical Center Phoenix. Can we specifically talk about uh, residency programs that are going to fill that primary care shortage, potentially some of those uh, options that are afforded through the internal medicine program? Correct. Um, one of the changes that happened um, last year was to create a primary care track within internal medicine. So unlike family medicine, where many of those graduates are practicing in primary care, internal medicine is a specialty where they can go practice in the hospital, um, further subspecialize, and not necessarily go into an ambulatory primary care. But that is an interest of many of our medical students who are passionate about 
about providing care in the ambulatory setting and providing primary care, and so um, we did start a primary care track. Another area of critical need is in addiction medicine, and that is a specialty that recently has been established and is now accredited residency and fellowship program. And we established one within the College of Medicine Phoenix with partnership with the VA, and that has started just this year. Also, Honor Health started an addiction medicine program, as did the College of Medicine Tucson. So that's a great opportunity to be able to address some of the workforce need around addiction specialists. There's other areas of need, geriatric psychiatry, child psychiatry, and other subspecialties That's there's been a critical need among um, our patients in the area and in the state. So we know how important our residency programs are to training our students. Being part of the curriculum committee and also part of the, the clerkship process and placing students across the state, our residency programs have provided such amazing educational opportunities for our medical students here. Can you speak to the reverse? How does the College of Medicine Phoenix contribute to the education of residents? You're right, it is mutual, a benefit that goes both ways. And our medical students are rotating in sites all throughout the state. So um, in rural areas as part of the um, certificate of distinction, doing rural rotations just to gain exposure. And that's creating teachers and faculty within those different areas who then have access to all of the resources here as far as faculty development. And that's creating a great environment for them to develop this passion and interest in then developing residency programs. Part of the new state funding, as I mentioned, is for rural programs. And there is a need and an interest in those rural hospitals to develop and really grow their own. So to have have residents learn in the setting where they hopefully will be practicing. It's going to be most practical on the job training. It's also going to establish them as part of that community where they can then stay to practice. And those faculty have partly developed that interest from their own training, but also from working with students. So the, the skills can translate to both the residents and the students. The other things are that residents, as you mentioned, are important teachers of our students. And so the resident as teachers program here at the College of Medicine Phoenix helps to develop those teaching skills, not just of the faculty, but also of the residents. And inviting participation of residents from across the state and across the city to participate in the simulation center. It's great state-of-the-art equipment. Um, we have residents from Yuma who come here for training. We have residents from um, citywide in the OBGYN programs that come to be trained and have specific experiences at the Sim Center here. It's, it's great that you mentioned the resident as teacher, resident as educator program because I've really enjoyed watching it flourish. Um, over the years. We also, and I just wanted to mention this too, I've been impressed with our Faculty Development Fellowship, mm. which, which has been an amazing opportunity for residents who are interested in academic medicine to continue growing their skills and their, their art of teaching. And a lot of those residents are just sort of naturally evolving into being preceptors and teachers when they graduate. Um, and that's a, that's a wonderful other opportunity. Yeah, I like how you discussed all the opportunities for our communities to 
entice our medical students to come in and become residents there and to lay down roots and make that their home so that they can provide for those communities that raised them and and allowed them to be successful, come into medical school, like Dr. Fogarty said, and then train and then provide that care. It's been a pleasure having you, Dr. O'Malley, um, and having you join our conversation, and we appreciate your input. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a great episode. I was really enjoying talking about our physician shortage because it's important, and I really right. like to kind of highlight the physician shortage nationwide, but also really the shortages facing us right here in Arizona, particularly in our biggest areas of need, our crisis shortages in primary care. Right, and first off, that uh, physician shortage is both a supply and a demand issue. In terms of supply, there are physicians who are, we're not graduating enough physicians, there are physicians retiring, and then there's, specifically in Arizona, a large influx of people who are mm -hmm. moving here uh, that is really fueling this crisis. Right. And, and I think it is, like we talked about, multifactorial. And it's, it's nice to discuss new programs that we've, you know, sort of focused on within our curriculum to sort of address some of these um, needs in our community. Right. And I really, as an educator here at the College of Medicine, I really uh, honed in on the fact that our medical students have very unique experiences, very unique exposures, and great mentorship that are all designed to help those students fulfill what Dr. Fogarty was telling us about finding what that service call is within each of our students. Yeah, I thought that was a common thread sort of throughout our guests during this episode that really exposure is key. So having that exposure and that great mentorship in communities, especially in communities of need and areas where we really need to focus our workforce, really does make a difference for where our students decide to practice. Right. And unlike another medical school that might be uh, contained within a dense city, we have the entire state of Arizona for mm -hmm. our trainees to go from uh, or to go train in. And Dr. Fogarty was explaining the number of applicants from all over the state of Arizona that are coming from all the corners. And then we try to give them opportunities to go back and serve in those communities that are going to give them uh, exposure, what it might be like, uh, as uh, Dr. O'Malley said, on the job training so that they can mm -hmm. envision themselves in those communities delivering that care and hopefully primary care that's so important to improving health outcomes as well as reducing costs but then also having people live longer which means we need more physicians again and as a primary care physician I'm glad that that came from you because I don't want to sound overly biased but it's not surprising at all to hear that there's healthier communities where there's primary care in the mix unquestionably unquestionably but that primary care does cost real dollars takes real facilities takes real programs in order to be able to staff those programs build those facilities staff those facilities so that uh, individuals know that they have care around the corner right and I'd say any any lift of you know building a training facility would cost dollars whether it's primary care or whatever specialty it is but it's nice to see sort of the outcomes that make you realize okay ultimately this is going to save this community yeah and in, then in cost effectiveness and then the creative solutions that have been presented mm -hmm. even though medicaid and medicare have been capped in terms of the number of gme slots there's other ways that working with the va working with the mm -hmm. state government working with the federal government to identify spots for additional residents which we have capacity to train we just need those spots and encourage those individuals to train here in order to be able to work here in order to be able to serve here I think some of those creative solutions that we discussed during this podcast are really important and it's nice to see some imaginative initiative 
attempt since we've been capped for so long and realizing we really have to dig ourselves out of this hole. I also think some of the things that Dr. Wolfrey mentioned about supply and demand and the natural evolution of since paying off debt is a huge preoccupation of our students and a lot of them I think and you know and based on surveys and data really don't necessarily choose with their heart all the time because they're so concerned about paying off that debt when they graduate it's really nice to see that some of those fund allocations and appropriations are really going to hopefully target and offset some of those stressors right and in making helping those trainees or those medical students make informed decisions about what's best for them and best for their outcome as opposed to what seems to be the most urgent need right now what um, what I'm excited about being faculty member here at the College of Medicine is that there was a goal to be 120 students, and it looks like that's right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Fogarty said that the college is built for 120, and we're right about there. I like how you said really doesn't feel like a walk. It feels like we're at least at a jog. Uh, and it's exciting to kind of finally meet that that number. I also like how he talked about how important it is that we continue filling those spots, whether it's 24, 48, 100, or 120, with students that really, you know, we have 6,000 applicants applicants. You know, the thing is, we want to make sure that the the students we select are the ones that really want to be here and they're a good fit and they're excited about what the U of A College of Medicine Phoenix has to offer. I like to think of it as the right right student, right seat. Unquestionably, that's precision recruitment, uh, precision (laughs) studenting that Dr. Fogarty spoke about. Katie, as always, it would be great if we could talk um, on and on on this topic about how uh, we're changing medicine here in the state of Arizona. Um, But we're out of time. So lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. Bright out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagine Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CCBYSA 4.0 license.